This is Our American Stories. We wanted to bring you the story of a guy you know, but don't know as well as you're about to get to know him. And his name is Tony Dungy. And if you're a football fan, and even if you're not, you know that he was the first African-American head coach to win a Super Bowl when his Colts defeated the Chicago Bears in 2007 in the Super Bowl. By the way, those were two African-American coaches and also two good Christian men. And Lovey Smith was the other coach. And, well, he gave a Hall of Fame speech because he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, Tony Dungy, in 2016. And we love to bring you talks and speeches that reveal the character and nature of folks. We did it with John Glenn uh, when he was... When he was buried, we went back into the archives to some of the speeches he had given at the Smithsonian to bring his voice to life so you could hear from him. And you're about to hear Coach Tony Dungy talking about his life in this speech. And it starts by Coach remembering his parents. When I got the news, my first thoughts were of all the people God placed in my path to help make this possible. It started in Jackson, Michigan, and I couldn't have had a better upbringing. I'm just sorry that my parents, Wilbur and Cleo Mae Dungy, aren't alive to see this because they would be so proud. My dad always preached to us to set our goals high and to not complain about negative circumstances. Just look for a way to make things better. My mom taught us that as a Christian, your character, your integrity, and how you honored God were so much more important than your job title. One of her favorite Bible verses was Matthew 16, 26. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And I know that she's happy to know that her son never forgot that verse. Wilbur and Clee May. Wilbur and Clee May, the parents. First thing Tony Dungy thanks. And then he thanked his coaches. Had a lot of excellent coaches growing up in all sports, but I really have to thank my high school football coach, Dave Driscoll. I came to him as a 14-year-old who felt like I knew it all. And Coach Driscoll helped me become a good player, but more than that, he helped me become a leader. He taught me how to think the game. Woody Woodenhofer and Tom Moore were the coaches who recruited me to the University of Minnesota, and I thank them for impacting my life. Woody would end up coaching me with the Steelers. And Tom Moore, you heard Marvin talk about Tom. Well, Tom rode with me on the very first plane ride I ever took, my recruiting trip to Minnesota when I was scared to get on the plane. He was my quarterback coach as a freshman, and then 33 years later, he was our offensive coordinator in Super Bowl 41 with the Colts, and he's still coaching now, and I owe him a lot. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Woody. And a big thank you to our head coach of the Gophers, Cal Stoll, who told us as freshmen that he expected us to be uncommon, not just average. And that thought has stuck with me throughout my life. And it's a great thought to be uncommon and not average. After some great formative years, Tony Dungy's career, his life, hit a speed bump. Well, after four years of playing quarterback at Minnesota, I expected to continue doing that in the NFL, but it didn't happen. In 1977, even though the draft was 12 rounds long then, I didn't get picked, and I was devastated. But it just is one example of God's plans being better than our plans. Woody and Tom were now in Pittsburgh coaching, 
and they convinced Chuck Knoll to give a guy who'd never played any position but quarterback a shot at another position. I have to say that $2,000 signing bonus I got didn't last long, <laughs> but I ended up gaining a lot more than money. Chuck Knoll would play a huge, huge role in my life and teach me so much about the game of football. But in our first meeting, he said that even though we were now professionals and we're being paid to play the game, we shouldn't make it our life. There was more to life than just football, and he wanted to help us find our life's work. But Coach Knoll, Art Rooney Sr., and Dan Rooney lived that out every day in the way they led the Steeler organization. Dungy talks about how one man in particular stood out in the Steelers organization. There were so many great players on that team. A lot of them up here right now as I speak today, and they all had an impact on me, but none of them more so than Donnie Shell. Donnie took me under his wing, and I learned so much from him, not just about playing safety, but about being a Christian athlete, a husband and father, and a teammate. Thank you, Donnie. And then Dungy remembers many setbacks and opportunities on and off the field. After getting a Super Bowl ring my second year, I experienced another disappointment, getting traded. But again, the Lord was using disappointment to help me grow. With the San Francisco 49ers, I got to play for Bill Walsh and see another system. And Eddie DeBarlo was instilling the same principles in his team that I'd seen with the Steelers, doing everything in a first-class and family way. My playing career only lasted one more year, and suddenly, at 25 years old, I was looking for a real job. That's when Coach Noel called me and gave me that chance to start my life's work. Coming back to Pittsburgh was the beginning of my coaching journey, but there was another blessing in store for me, meeting my beautiful wife, Lauren, the love of my life, my biggest supporter, and my greatest blessing. And when we come back, it's almost a biography listening to this speech, and that's why we love to play him. In his words, and you hear him referring to his, his Lord, and when we do and when we can, we focus on people's faith. And when it's not there, that's fine too, but we don't leave it out when it is there. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Tony Dungy's Hall of Fame speech, A Day in the Life, A Glimpse into the Man who was the first African-American to ever win a Super Bowl. More on Tony Dungy from Tony Dungy. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our first wave of children came soon after we got married. 
Sierra, Jamie, and Eric's lives were typical of assistant coaches' kids. Moving every few years, leaving friends, making new friends, and they did it without complaining. Now our second wave of kids, Jordan, Jade, Justin, Jason, Jalen, Jaden, and Jayla, well, they had a little more stability. Jordan and Jade were able to experience some of the perks of being the head coach's kids, but they also had their disappointments, like when Dad couldn't come to a birthday party or a school performance. But all ten of them know I love them, and I hope they know how much I appreciate their sacrifices. And that's Tony Dungy talking about his family. He had spoken about his bride before we uh, left you off in the last segment. And now we continue with this great speech by Tony Dungy. He was inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. And periodically, we love to take you back to old speeches, old essays, old movies, because if you didn't bump into it, it's not old. And this reveals so much of Tony Dungy's character in this Hall of Fame speech. Here, he recalls some of the steps along the path to becoming a head coach. Well, getting to that head coaching job was a long journey from Pittsburgh to Kansas City to Minnesota. 15 great years and a lot of wonderful people. But I have to thank two people in particular. During my four years with the Vikings, Tom Lanphier, our chaplain, met with me weekly going through the book of Nehemiah to give me a picture of biblical leadership that I would use to guide my teams. Thank you, Tom. And Denny Green, Denny went out of his way to teach me the responsibilities of being a head coach. Taught me about things on and off the field. He did it because he wanted to see me become a head coach. And he wanted me to be prepared and be ready when that opportunity came. And I love him for that. But as much as I appreciate that, The thing I'm most grateful to Denny for is that he made sure his assistant coaches had quality time with our families. He let my boys come to camp and be around their dad. He made sure we were able to be husbands and fathers as well as coaches. And just as Coach Noel had done, Denny showed me that you could win doing it that way. I thanked him many, many, many times over the years, but I really wish I could thank him one more time tonight for everything he did to help me take that final step. And who your mentors are matters, folks. And if you're lucky enough to stumble upon the right ones, they can change your whole life, your whole worldview. Tony Junji was lucky to stumble into Denny Green, but he also picked that chaplain. So some by design, some by chance. But they shaped this man deeply. Here's Dungy finally talking about getting the gig he'd always dreamed of. And that step came in 1996 when I got the job I thought I'd never get, head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I thank Rich McKay, who headed up the search, and Brian Joel and Ed Glazer for their confidence in me. And I'm especially grateful to Malcolm Glazer, who was so supportive and so loving and gave me so much practical advice. Our family enjoyed a phenomenal six years in Tampa. 1997 was probably my favorite year in coaching. We made the playoffs for the first time in 15 years 
and the Bucks fans went crazy over their team. And those fans still remain special to me to this day. Dungey remembers another big setback, another big opportunity. Losing my job in, nine, in 2002 after a playoff loss was another painful disappointment. But again, God used it to lead me to a blessing. That's when Jim Irsay called and gave me the opportunity to join him and Bill Polin in Indianapolis. Like Rich McKay, Bill had an exceptional eye for talent, and he built a tremendous football team. We had a lot of fun over the next seven years, highlighted by that Super Bowl 41 victory. But I'll tell you, the most satisfying part was doing what Jim talked about in that first phone conversation, connecting with our community and making the Colts an integral part of the Indianapolis landscape. I'd like to thank you big time, Jim and Bill, and the Coles fans. You made us feel like native Hoosiers, and our family loves you. And Dungee then went on to thank many other people, the assistant coaches, the staff, the players, and one player in particular, Peyton Manning. But the biggest reason I'm here tonight is the people I was able to work with during my 13 years as a head coach. I had fantastic assistant coaches in Tampa and Indianapolis, and some awesome staff people. I wish I had time to recognize them individually because they were the big reason why we were successful. You don't win in the NFL without players, and was I ever blessed with players? Again, I'm not going to recognize them all individually, but so many of them are here tonight, and I'm going to ask them to stand while I talk about them. There's a bunch up here on this podium I'd like to stand, guys who played for me. There's some in my section. They're in Marvin's section. If you played for me, I'd love for you to stand up so I could recognize you. As you see, several of them are in the Hall of Fame already. Others are certainly going to follow them. And there's no doubt these guys are responsible for me being up here today. I thank you guys. I love you, every one of you. Thank you. And some guys pretend to not take the credit, and other guys don't want the credit. And you can tell, if you were watching that, that Dun, Dun G, well, he didn't like taking credit for any of this stuff. Last but not least, Dun G had to turn his attention to the trailblazers, the African-American men in this sport who paved the way for him to be, again, the very first African-American to coach an NFL Super Bowl winner. And finally, I'd like to say a special thank you to 10 men. Willie Brown, Buck Buchanan, Ernell Durden, Bob Ledbetter, Elijah Pitts, Jimmy Ray, Johnny Rowland, Al Tabor, Lionel Taylor, and Alan Webb. Now those names might not be familiar to you, but those were the African-American assistant coaches in the NFL in 1977, my first year in the league. (laughs) 
It was a small group of men, just 10 of them, if you can believe that, 10 African-American assistant coaches in the entire NFL. Many of them never got the chance to move up the coaching ladder like I did, but they were so important to the progress of this league. Those men were like my dad. They didn't complain about the lack of opportunities. They found ways to make the situation better. They were role models and mentors for me and my generation of young African-American players like Ray Rhodes, Terry Rubisky, and Herm Edwards. We were in the 80s trying to decide whether we could make coaching a career or not. Without those 10 coaches laying the groundwork, the league would not have the 200-plus minority assistant coaches it has today. And we would not have had Lovey Smith and Tony Dungy coaching against each other in Super Bowl 41. So tonight, as I join Fritz Pollard as the second African-American coach in the Hall of Fame, I feel like I'm representing those 10 men and all the African-American coaches who came before me and paved the way. And I thank them very, very much. And there you have it, Tony Dungy's speech. We're going to play this last clip now. Here is how he closed things out in The Lord Canada. has truly led me on a wonderful journey through 31 years in the NFL, through some temporary disappointments to some incredible joys. I cherish every single relationship that I was able to make over those 31 years, and I'll always be grateful to the National Football League for giving me my life's work. Thank you, and God bless. Don't complain. Make the situation better. His mom and dad told that to him. These 10 great African-American assistant coaches, and again, there were only 10 when he came into the league. There are now 200-plus. America still trying and working hard to overcome its original sin, and working hard it is. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Bruce Springsteen. 
And his writing about fathers and sons made him, I believe, who he is today. It was the ballads always. And here on Our American Stories, we talk a lot about father-son stories, mother-daughter as well, and father-daughter, and of course mother-son, and these relationships matter and form who we are, and particularly the impact of a father and the lack thereof and what that can do to a boy's life. Boy, do we hit that, and that's why we spend so much time on prison stories. Well, we brought you quite a number of great father-son stories. Gary Ginsberg's tribute to his dad and me, my dad, and American Pharaoh on their time together at the racetrack and how he cried when American Pharaoh won the Triple Crown, wishing his late dad was there with him for that historic moment. And we brought you Brooke Eason's tribute to his father, Paul, who, as a scoutmaster, had more Boy Scouts come under his leadership than any other scoutmaster in the history of the Boy Scouts. And if you've got a father-son story, call us at 844-627-8255 and record your story there. Or leave us your information and we can help you record it. And today, Alex has a story for us, our producer Alex Cortez. Alex, what brought you to this story? So I'm originally from Chicago, Lee, as you know. We've dined on much good Chicago food together. Yep, <laughs> and yep. I bumped across this uh, father-son story from a Chicago writer. And what I loved about it is it wasn't an epic or a dramatic story in any way, but was a very simple story, as you're about to hear it. It was powerful in its simplicity. So let's take a listen to it. The Way of the World. Memories of a Childhood Selling Cheese by Joel Reese from Chicago Magazine. I went to the Northfield Farmer's Market the other day. I know, stop the presses, right? But actually, it was a pretty big deal for me because it's the place where I grew up. I started working at a cheese stand there when I was nine. Some kids played catch with their fathers or grew close casting fishing lines into quiet ponds. Not me. My dad and I bonded as I added up numbers in pencil on a brown paper bag while he cut, weighed, and wrapped cheese from Wisconsin. He hadn't always been a cheese seller. Before he entered that world, my dad, Omer Reese, was the music director at Ridgewood High School in the northwestern Chicago suburb of Norridge. The difference is this, okay? I can sing a song for you, and it can mean... Then, suddenly, he was laid off. The school had declining enrollment, so music was cut. He tried to cobble together a few part-time teaching jobs. He directed his church's choir, and even worked as a janitor to supplement his dwindling teaching income. But it was over. So my dad decided to do something he'd been doing on the side, sell cheese. For years, he'd been bringing back to Chicago handcrafted cheese from the tiny towns of southwestern Wisconsin, Dodgeville, Verona, Fenimore, towns that even locals hadn't heard of. Perhaps he thought, hey, my friends like this cheese. I'll just start a business and it'll be huge. It didn't quite work out that way. So every Saturday morning, rain or shine, we'd rise before dawn and cram into his small Toyota station wagon, literally packed to the roof with cheese. Driving from Evanston, we would arrive at the lawn where the Northfield Bowl long ago used to be, unfold our rinky-dink table, put the cheese out, and immediately be swarmed by customers who jostled into a line as we tried to get ready for the day. 
I sat in a canvas folding chair at the end of the table. My dad weighed the cheese on a rusty scale, priced it in his head, and then told me the cost, which I told it on a paper bag. We never quite figured out a good workspace for me. My wobbly setup was a few cheddar boxes stacked on top of each other, my cash box another paper bag. I should have gotten a sense of my dad's business acumen from the fact that it took him about five years to get an actual metal cash box. But he always kept things light and fun, customers left with bags full of absurdly underpriced cheese and smiles on their faces. Back then, in the late 1970s, the Northfield Farmers Market sold the basics. Corn, tomatoes, potatoes, broccoli. The most exotic items were our cheeses and the crumbling, mediocre cookies and cupcakes made by a guy we called the No Butter Baker. Organic? I never heard that word uttered once. But the market kept growing and our lines got longer. A former music teacher and a lone preteen didn't exactly mesh with the stoic, weathered farmers who drove hours to sell their corn, but we still shared an unspoken bond. During the market, I'd run among the stands, frantically trying to get singles for a $5 bill. Bunny, the vegetable-selling redhead with the lusty laugh, would hustle over to get paper bags. And then there was the stand with the farmer's daughters, four gorgeous blondes. That axiom about the farmer's beautiful progeny? Brother, that ain't no myth. At the end of the day, we'd gathered by Larry's truck and swap stories about the awful customers, the kids who grabbed stuff with their booger-encrusted fingers, the woman who ordered sharp shutter. Once in a while, someone crack open a beer. That kid have a beer, it'll settle your nerves. Over the years, I graduated to waiting on customers. I learned how to cut the fragile wheel of blue cheese so the slices didn't break into bits. We finally got a metal cash box. Eventually, I was dispatched to the market in Wilmette, a few miles east. I found several tricks boosted my sales. Posting a sign helped, as did putting out free samples. After 20 summers, I moved on. I got married and left the farmer's markets behind. My dad sold his business. He restarted Wisconsin Artisan Cheese years later, which is a whole other story. And the markets, like us, they changed too. Which brings me back to my recent trip to the Northfield Farmer's Market. It still felt bucolic. It was a beautiful, cloudless day. The vendors spread out on a field of freshly cut grass, a young couple harmonizing to Oasis's Wonder Wall on an acoustic guitar. There were vegetable stalls, but also many sellers of pre-made goods such as gluten-free brownies, gourmet lollipops, and organic coconut oil. The crowd seemed indifferent, with multitudes of cyclists and far too revealing lycra. But being there also made me think about the courage my dad showed and the disappointment he kept inside. I can't imagine how hard it must have been to go from changing students' lives to working at that market every week, year after year. Having lost jobs a few times, I never had the courage to start anew and begin a business from scratch. That's no small thing. I also realized how ahead of the curve my dad was. He embraced the idea of artisanal cheese decades before it became artisanal cheese. He crafted his own recipes, working with cheesemakers to add chipotle peppers long before anyone knew what they were. He had the brilliant idea to smoke gouda over burning apple branches. So maybe it was worth it. All the sweat and the ripped paper bags and the pungent smell of blue cheese that stays in your nose for days, maybe that's what happens when you do what you have to do. And maybe it's okay that my dad wasn't a businessman. He provided for his family and held on to his integrity. Maybe that's enough. 
And Alex, the takeaway on that? You know, I think the hardest uh, thing as a dad in that kind of situation is keeping it together. You know, that's one thing I really, you know, hearing this story reflecting on too, what I love so much about my dad is, is how he left it at the office. You know, after a bad day of, of losing money in the financial markets, or in this case, losing your job, and act normally going home with your kids. You know, and that's something I struggle now with to some degree as a father, and, and hearing these stories are powerful. Well, way of the world, memories of a childhood selling cheese. Thank you, Joel Reese from Chicago Magazine. This is Lee Habib, Father-Son Stories, here on Our American Stories. our American stories and you're listening to Jared Reynolds singing a song well if you've been a church into a church of any kind ever Christian or not it's a song you've heard and we love to tell the stories of songs here on our American stories every kind light my fire by the doors we did another brick in the wall by Pink Floyd there goes my life by Kenny Chesney what a story that is And Gimme Shelter, It Doesn't Get Better, how that song was made, how it was recorded. You hear from Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, the whole band, and a singer who does some remarkable background work. A great story. And the story of this song, I Surrender All, boy, is it good. As a public high school art teacher in Sharon, Pennsylvania, Judson Wheeler Van Deventer found himself at a crossroads in 1891. He was an active member of his Methodist Episcopalian church, and his friends encouraged him to enter ministry, but he resisted. He felt that his arm's-length relationship with Jesus Christ disqualified him from genuinely professing and preaching faith in his Savior. He was born in December 5, 1855, to John and Eliza on a small farm in Dundee, Michigan. Although he was raised in a Christian household, He didn't come face-to-face with Christ until he was 17. After this encounter, he continued to struggle with surrendering his life and trusting in his God. Soon afterwards, in 1874, he began attending a small rural college in Michigan called Hillsdale College, where he studied art. He also studied, taught, and composed music, and throughout his life he would master 13 different instruments. He wrestled with God for five more years. But finally, at a church meeting in East Palestine, Ohio, where he was leading the worship, he came to a conclusion 
and wrote a song. Van Deventer wrote this. For some time, I had struggled between developing my talents in the field of art and going into full-time evangelistic work. At last, the pivotal hour of my life came, and I surrendered all. A new day was ushered into my life. I became an evangelist and discovered, down deep in my soul, a talent hitherto unknown to me. God had hidden a song in my heart and touched a tender chord. He caused me to sing. The song born in his heart was this song. Of the more than 60 hymns he wrote, this is his best known. In 1896, Winfield Whedon put these words to music. Whedon loved the hymn so much that the words were put on his tombstone after his death in 1908. And as we learn so often in art, collaboration occurs. And here we needed Mr. Whedon to put, well, to put these words and music together. The writer of this song retired to Tampa, Florida, and was a regular professor at hymnology at Florida Bible Institute. One man that was moved by this song, Reverend Billy Graham, who wrote the following account, which was published in Crusade Hymn Stories. Quote, One of the evangelists who influenced my early preaching was also a hymnist who wrote I Surrender All. He was a regular visitor at the Florida Bible Institute in the late 1930s, We students love this kind, deeply spiritual gentleman, and often gathered in his winter home at Tampa, Florida for an evening of fellowship and singing. And that's the power of song, folks. The music, this music, this one song, this one man, influenced one of the great pastors and spiritual leaders of the 20th century, Billy Graham. Even today, this hymn can be seen and heard in prime time, Here's Oprah Winfrey with her guest, country music star, Faith Hill. I heard from my, my producers that last night in rehearsal that you really can belt out some gospel, right? Um, and the song you were singing during rehearsal just happens to be one of my favorites, because I'm going to tell you why. Well, have a seat, y'all. When I wanted to be in the color purple, which is now, it's a 20 years ago, I wanted to be in the color purple. Mm-hmm. And I had auditioned for the color purple, and I, two months later I call back and they say, well, no, we have real actresses. We have real actresses who've auditioned for this part. And I was so hurt, and I was, you know, very much overweight, and I had been praying and praying and praying and praying to get this role. And after I heard that other people, real actresses, I thought it's not going to happen and I thought it's because I'm fat and it's because I thought this was the moment for me. So I go to this fat farm, this health retreat, (laughs) to try to lose 50 pounds in two weeks. So I'm there and I said to God, 
I said, God, this is too heavy for me. This, this is too much. I've wanted it. I've become obsessed with it. I want this role so much. So I go out on the track and I start praying and I say, I don't think it's going to happen, God. I really don't think it's going to happen for me. But will you take it, take this from me, this obsession, this desire, this thing that I, I feel like I can't go on unless I get this role. And I started singing, I surrender all. I started praying and singing. I started going around the track singing. I surrender all. And I prayed and I sang and I prayed and I sang and I prayed and I sang and I cried. I prayed and I sang and I cried. And when I finally, you know, there's a difference between praying and then getting up and taking the prayer with you. I prayed until Jesus came down and he took it. I literally surrendered it. surrendered it. I got up, I left the track, I thought, okay, I can, I can, I can move on now. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. And I started to turn to walk back into um, the, the, the cafeteria, naturally. <laughs> and this woman comes running out the door and she says, there's a phone call for you. It's Steven Spielberg. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And that was really... That was that in that moment was when I came to know what mm -hmm. it meant to surrender versus just kind of talking about it. Right. I got on the phone and Stephen says, I hear you're at a fat farm. And I go, no, sir, it's a health retreat. <laughs> and uh, he said, if you lose a pound, you could lose this part. And so I stopped at the Dairy Queen on the way. <laughs> But since that time, you know, I Surrender All is one of my favorite songs. I didn't know that. Yes, and I heard that last night during rehearsal, you were singing I Surrender All. I go, that is my song. <laughs> so would you do that for us? Oh, would you do yes. it? Okay. Yes. And this is the power of that song. One African-American Mississippi girl knew it. And a white Mississippi girl knew it. They came from de very different sides of the track in a state torn by race at the time, and they were young. And here is that Mississippi girl singing to the other Mississippi girl, no doubt, both of their favorite songs. Oh, to Jesus I surrender, freely give I will ever I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender humbly at his feet I bow. Blessed 
And thanks, Brianna and the students at Hillsdale College for coming up with this beautiful story. The story of a song. Van Deventer, by the way, died in Florida on July 17, 1939. The song lives on forever. This is Our American Stories, and the minute you hear that music, you're put into a time and a place. And Jesse and I often think we should be doing a two-hour special on just great soundtracks to movies, because the music is just so astounding and so good, and always suits the purpose. And again, that's the Godfather soundtrack. We love to talk about art here, and we love to talk about actors and musicians and even comedians, our hour on Steve Martin. We urge you to go to Our American Network, go on the search button, and find that Steve Martin hour. It's terrific. There's no precedent for John Cazale. He's an anomaly in cinematic history. He appeared on the big screen, wholly formed, and immediately made an indelible imprint. And then, just as suddenly, six years later, he was gone. In that short time, he created four characters in five feature films. The Godfather, The Conversation, The Godfather Part 2, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. Oh my goodness, that's crazy. That can still be regarded over 40 years later as benchmarks of film acting. He was Fredo, by the way, in The Godfather. And we'll get to that later, but I just wanted to give you an idea of who he was. John's work, like his life, cannot be accurately measured in duration, only in depth. The entirety of his screen time in all five movies boils down to mere minutes. But the more we see, the more we cannot look away. It isn't simply that he had the distinction of only appearing in masterpieces. It is that his performances within them are also masterpieces. Those who mistake celebrity for ability may question how good he really was, After all, he wasn't really a movie star. He was never billed above the title. But John Cazale is acting's best-kept secret. He played one of the most iconic characters in film history, as I'd said before, Fredo Corleone from The Godfather. Yet today, most people don't even know his name. To prove this point, a picture was shown of John Cazale playing Fredo to people walking the streets of New York City. Here's their reaction. You know who this guy is? Nope. Nope. Something from The Godfather. He was the oldest one. He was a little slow. They the sound that betrayed. Yes? Yes. Did he pray? Fre- Fredo? Yeah, Fredo. Uh, Fredo. Uh, Fredo. 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 Do you remember? Do you, do you know uh, what the actor's name is? Well, his name was Fredo. Shoot. Uh, wait, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. Oh, I love this guy, too. What was his name? He was very good. Fredo, I know it was you, Fredo. 
The actors John Cazale supported, Robert De Niro, Gene Hackman, Al Pacino, and Meryl Streep among them, all said working with John Cazale made them better. He greatly influenced many others, such as Steve Buscemi, Sam Rockwell, and the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, who were of the following acting generations. If the Academy Awards can be regarded as an indicator of climactic excellence, John has an impeccable track record, not just for himself. He was never mentioned in the nominations for his acting, probably because the Academy never caught him doing any. It's a well-known bit of movie trivia that all five films in which he appeared were nominated for Best Picture, and three of them received the Oscar. Further, he appeared posthumously in archival footage in The Godfather Part Three, which was also nominated for Best Picture, maintaining his perfect record. He is the only actor in history to have this distinction. John Cazale was more than eager to explore the dark, damaged sides of his characters. In doing so, he presented us with a human instead of a type. Let's fast forward to a scene from Godfather 2, where we hear a little bit about John's gift as an actor and his approach to his craft. We open with a scene between John playing Fredo and Al Pacino playing his brother, Michael. Mike, you don't come to Las Vegas and talk to a man like Mo Green like that. Fredo, you're my older brother and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. By the way, the subtlety in his acting uh, is was so amazing, the, the emotional depth of it. When Al arrives in Las Vegas and John is already there, and he's got the band set up and the hookers. He does like this kind of, the band is playing, he does this kind of thing, and it's just so brilliant. I mean, that dance. Welcome to Las Vegas. Well, his idea, right? And Al says, get rid of them. Get rid of them, Fredo. Hey, Mike. Fredo, I'm here on business. I leave tomorrow and I get rid of them. And the look on his face was so amazing, the, the emotional depth of it. A whole kind of person became present in that one reaction to Al ordering him about like that. Hey, come on! Ram! That's where John fit in so miraculously because all of that vulnerability, all of that pain that was in John as a man is suddenly connecting with us on a level that we never thought possible. In the late 50s, we both were in acting class together, studying with Peter Cass. Peter Cass was quick to see what you might be ashamed of in yourself and in your background, and to point out that this was part of who you were and that you needed every part of yourself. The idea of only presenting yourself in the best light was anathema to him. I mean, if you look at John's work, you see how willingly he went to the dark side (laughs) and how capable he was of doing that. John felt very strongly that finding the character, you had to find the pain first, where that character was in pain, where he hurt. He felt that that was the major motivation and that would translate into positive choices as an actor. I think the artist is born in a suffering child and Uh, There are all kinds of reasons for children to suffer, and I I don't know exactly what it was. That was John's reason, but I could 
venture a guess, certainly it was probably, you know, a strong, overbearing father that was difficult. The life of John Cazale for the hour. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. We continue with the life of John Cazale. And you're listening to the soundtrack of The Deer Hunter. It's beautiful. And by the way, that that point that somebody made before, they knew how to find the pain in the character, that was what Cazale did. And in doing so, I think found pain in all of us. Cazale's five films received 40 Oscar nominations. In addition... Fourteen of the performances by actors he supported were nominated for Oscars. This is not a coincidence. He enriched every film in which he acted. He inspired every actor with whom he worked. Far more impressive than John's association with Oscar-nominated films was the acting he did in them. But what he did was something beyond acting, what can be called transcendent acting or non-acting. Sir Ben Kingsley observed, The camera is allergic to acting. John's characters tend to just stick in our minds because as opposed to just seeing them, we feel as if we're meeting them. For those who weren't alive when The Godfather premiered, it is hard to quantify its impact on the culture. There is no contemporary equivalent. The only comparison is the arrival of the Beatles in America. The opening of The Godfather, like the arrival of the Beatles, was similar to a cultural earthquake. Nothing was quite the same afterwards. And like the Beatles, The Godfather has remained contemporary. Shortly after the film premiered, a joke started to circulate. Someone would say, In our family, he's Fredo. Everyone would laugh because they knew exactly what that meant. The subject of the joke was weak, inept, a bit stupid perhaps, most certainly a loser. No one ever said, In our family, He's Salonzo or Clemenza or Tessio. What would that mean? But Fredo? Everyone knew. It was vivid, clear, perfect. Because the actor who portrayed Fredo, someone named John Cazale, made him vivid, clear, and perfect. From the moment he comes into view in The Godfather, he commands the screen, not through bombast or bravura, but with sublime subtlety. In the midst of the noisy activity of the wedding celebration, he slowly and quietly approaches the table where Brother Michael and Kay are sitting. Kay was played by Diane Keaton. When he appears, he is quite drunk. But John is too fine an actor to play drunk. Instead, he plays a drunken man trying to appear sober. He steps carefully and slowly, puts his hand on Kay's chair to steady himself, and kneels down in his tux to get eye level with Michael and Kay. How are you, Fredo? Fredo? My brother Fredo, this is Kay Adams. Hi. How are you doing? 
This is my brother, Mike. Are you having a good time? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is your friend, huh? <laughs> the whole scene takes 21 seconds, but it tells us vital information. Fredo is a lover and a family of killers. With his inhibitions lowered by alcohol, we see he is sweet, he's affectionate, he's soft-spoken. He doesn't belong there. He's not looking for power. He's looking for love and acceptance. And maybe, just maybe, a little bit of respect. But the scene where Don Corleone, played by Marlon Brando, is shot in front of his son Fredo, Brando was reportedly so impressed with John's commitment to his role that he laid in the street off camera while John shot his close-ups to afford him the greatest sense of reality in the scene. After The Godfather, John was cast as Stan, the assistant to an introverted paranoid surveillance consultant in The Conversation, a psychological mystery thriller written, produced, and directed by Francis Ford Coppola and starring Gene Hackman. Here's Coppola, Meryl Streep, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. He was able to tackle anything that came up in the first Godfather. Then I wrote a role for him in The Conversation. He's a nice guy for a cop. I knew what was just a character of an assistant would suddenly come to life as a real character. The conversation was a cult film. People already had it on as their favorite film of all time. Especially people who wanted to show that they were impervious to the mass taste. You know, like, it's not The Godfather that I love the most. It's... I would almost bet money that all the actors that work with him were inspired by what he did on the day. To take it that much further, to be that much more creative or, or risky uh, or personal, because he seemed to be kind of uncomfortably vulnerable in everything he did, and that always makes people go, oh, I think I gotta work a little harder. <laughs> I think I better rethink what I'm doing here, because this guy's really going for it. This guy's really going for it, and that was Philip Seymour Hoffman, that last clip. John took roles that no actor would want, and by virtue of his performances, he managed to turn them into parts every actor wished he'd played. Here's Al Pacino and Meryl Streep. Streep starred with Cazale in his last film, The Deer Hunter, and was also his longtime girlfriend. Fredo, come with me. It's the only way out of here tonight. Roth is dead. Fredo. He became whoever it was he was playing. And he did that by asking questions, because he taught me about asking questions and not having to answer them. That's the beauty. What's wonderful about it is you open the door to things. Directors used to call him 20 questions. He was never, never, never satisfied with just the outlines of a character or just filling out the expected thing. He got so much from the delving into things. It was a lesson in itself. I think I learned more about acting from John than anybody. That's a pretty heady statement. That's Al Pacino saying he learned more about acting than anybody, and he studied with Lee Strasberg, and he studied with Uta Hagen, the two masters of the New York theater and of film. Amazing. There are moments in each of John Cazale's performances so real, so vulnerable, that one wonders if he should be watching. Unlike most actors, there was never an instance in any of his performances when John was winking at the audience, trying to signal 
that the character's deficiencies didn't apply to him personally. Here's Francis Ford Coppola on the infamous I'm smart and I want respect scene from The Godfather 2 between Cazale and Pacino. Cazale's haunting countenance and strong portrayal of weak characters is unmatched. I remember when we shot that scene and uh, and, and thinking that uh, we had shot something really that had come to life and was extraordinary and you know, very definitely the way Cassell used the chair because that chair was there and certainly you could slump in it and everything but somehow he used it to express what was the point in a way that um, I had never anticipated. I've always taken care of you, Fredo. Taken care of me? You're my kid brother and you take care of me? Did you ever think about that? Did you ever once think about that? Send Fredo off to do this, send Fredo off to do that. Let Fredo take care of some Mickey Mouse nightclub somewhere. Send Fredo to pick somebody up at the airport. I'm your older brother, Mike, and I was stepped over. That's the way Pop wanted it. It ain't the way I wanted it. I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. Like dumb. I'm smart, and I want respect. He's such an imp, you know. He's so irresponsible, and that'd be so desperate. He's so anxious to get his piece of the pie and to be respected. A heartbreaking scene. And what are we talking about? We're talking about a ter- totally antisocial, probably terrible man. And Cazal uh, broke your heart. He really let himself out there. He's really vulnerable. You know, it's not easy to play weak. You know, if you get the script for The Godfather, you know, every young actor is going to want to play Sonny or Michael, you know? They're not going to want to play Fredo. You want to be strong, and you want to be, hmm. So you want to say, look how talented I am. Weakness is something that a lot of actors, I think, are afraid to play. They'll, they'll play weak men, but they'll do it in a really sort of showboaty way to let you know that they're not weak, that it's a performance. And Cazal was just so disinclined to do that. And by the way, we're disinclined to do that in our lives, too. We all do it. We know it. And we do it with our friends, we do it with our family members, and I think this is why we seek refuge in art. It is the one place where we can then talk to people about characters and talk about ourselves while we're doing it. And that's why we spend a lot of time here in art and storytelling. And this is Our American Stories, and when we come back, more on the life of John Cazale, one of the great actors you know but don't know, who changed, I believe, and I know Greg, who helped and did this piece will have changed acting as we know it for some of the great actors in America more after these messages talking about John Cazale for the hour. 
And we love talking about art here on Our American Stories and Music. And what's beautiful about movies is the intersection of screenwriting, so there's the writing, there's that human talent, almost that operatic talent of the actor, and then, of course, there's the music. And again, one day we're going to be putting together, and I hope real soon, just an hour or two on soundtracks and the stories of the people behind those soundtracks, because a soundtrack can make or break a movie. And you're listening to the soundtrack from The Deer Hunter. And by the way, to remind you, Kazale, well, he created four characters in five feature films that I think can still be regarded as benchmarks of film acting. And the films he were in, all of them received Oscar nominations. And that's pretty unbelievable. John's art was ahead of the curve in the evolution of acting. That's what made him special. When the 20th century began with silent movies, acting was demonstrative, it was demonstrative, it was exaggerated. Lots of big gestures. It was still based in the traditions of the stage. Because on the stage, you've got to hit the back row. And thus, the big gestures. As the technology developed, first with the introduction of sound, and then with the refinements in the process itself, actors came to understand they could be subtler in their performances. Still, the desire to emote, to show off, was always present. During the 1950s, Actors such as two of John's idols, Montgomery Cliff and Marlon Brando, embraced Stanislavski's method of acting. And he's a Russian critic and teacher of acting. And began to explore the underlying motivations and emotions in their characters. So in other words, going from representational acting to, well, getting under the skin acting. This resulted in greater realism, along with heightened emotionalism, which showed itself in climactic moments. John didn't push anything. Instead, he could invite people in and compel them to draw closer to the character he was playing. But back to the story. What John knew was that our perception of someone comes from nonverbal input much more than verbal. How many times have you said, quote, I met this guy and he seemed okay, but there was just something about him I didn't like. It was nothing he said or did, that's for sure. It was just a sense that you got about him. That sense comes from all the energy generated by what the guy is thinking and feeling, all the things that make up his history and therefore his personality. It works the same way in acting and Cazelle knew how to find this life in his characters. Paradox was always present in his work. He didn't play good guys. All his characters had flaws, some more than others. He played a pimp, a thief, and perhaps a killer, and a braggart who waved a gun in the faces of his friends and, at least once, punched a woman. The most normal of his characters was a professional voyeur. Yet somehow... We have affection for each of these men, or at least an acceptance of them. And that's because John never judged the character he was playing. He understood the character, all the characters. Such understanding can only come through exploring their humanity, their motivation. Here's Steve Buscemi and co-star Al Pacino discussing Cazale's role as bank robber Sal 
in Dog Day Afternoon. Just from the moment you see him on screen in Dog Day Afternoon, he's so... Um, You're the manager? He's so strange looking, you know, a really intense face. And then, you know, the, the receding hair, uh, hairline, the huge forehead, and then the long hair. Um, I had just never seen a character like that on film before. Just keep talking like nothing was wrong. I remember we were casting, and Sidney Lament wanted a, a 19-year-old boy. To, he thought that would be very important, and he was sort of right. I'd been reading a lot of people for it, and Al kept asking me to, uh, to read John. So, of course, Sidney, I would think, well, John, that's not what I'm thinking, John Cassell, no, the guy who did Fredo, no. Finally, because I've got such respect for Al, John came in, and I was just stunned. He could not have looked wronger. And then he read. And it was just the most extraordinary connection. I ain't going back to that prison, Sonny. I mean, I got the image of him in my mind, you know, that image of that character, oh, man. Everything he did, the hair, that, yeah. the Watch movement. Yo, come with me. Watch him. Sit down, sit down. The intensity. Wow. You know, he's very intense, uh, but, but nervous. I mean, you felt at any time that he could really lose it. Stay right there! It's all is scary in that movie. He completely erases the dynamic that he had with Pacino in the Godfather movies. Hey, you, manager! Don't get ideas. I bark. That man there, see him? He fights. You don't ever really believe when you're watching the movie that Pacino is going to kill someone. Cazal, you think, might. There's a way out of this. I'm Listen, telling you, there's a way see, out of this. Were you serious about what you said? About what? About throwing... About throwing those bodies out the door. Yeah, well, that's what I want, and you know, that's what I want him to think. Come on, what do you think? Because I'll tell you right now, I'm ready to do it. Well, I'll tell you something, when he says that line, you believe he's ready to kill somebody just out of fear, you know? And, and I think that, that intensity level's in his eyes throughout the entire film. He, he provides that, it's right there, those eyes. It's like, they cut to him a lot in that movie. And it's it's because he's got that, he's got the stakes. And Lamette needs that to get the audience revved up. There's just something in that face that takes you into uh, an area that's very dark, personally dark, and heartbroken. Heartbroken and dark. And, well, that's Cazale. A compelling choice John made was to play Sal in this movie in the direction opposite that which most actors would choose. Typically, the psychotic gunman starts out soft-spoken and builds to a frenzy by the climax of the film. But here, instead, Sal is commanding at the start, barking orders at people, dominating them. Then, as the situation grows more complicated... He retreats inside of himself. And the quieter he gets, the more dangerous he becomes. And by the way, that's so complicated and so brilliant. And you would read a script and there's no way you could come up with that. You know, when I first looked at a screenplay and a script for theater and I studied acting for a long time, I just was so overwhelmed with all the choices you could make, how to do it. It's not like reading a novel. When you read a novel, it's all there for us. But in the end, I agree with 
something a great acting coach once said, for the ordinary American, for the ordinary person, or even the average actor, it's best to just watch Shakespeare performed because to read it is to miss the point. It's a blueprint for actors. And it's an emotional blueprint. And there's emotional data all over the place. But the average person can't see it. They can't see the subtext. They can't see the stage. They can't hear the music. And my goodness, Cazell could hear all of that. He could see all of it somehow. And that's what made him great. Also, what he did was these opposites. He, he was able to do the opposite. If you ever get to see On the Waterfront, there's a scene where Rod Steiger is going to sell out his brother. He's telling his brother, an aspiring possible boxing champ, to throw a fight for the mobsters. And you would think Marlon Brando would come through the seat and punch his brother. But all Brando does is the opposite. And all he says is, Charlie, Charlie. Like he was just disappointed. That's what made Brando great. It's what made Cazale great. This is Our American Stories, our final segment on the life of John Cazale after these messages. Friends say John Cazale had a great sense of humor. As with all other aspects of his acting, there was no effort to his humorous moments, no reach. He never signaled intent to be funny. He was completely real, but was capable of such subtle nuance. He catches us unexpectedly, and we laugh in spite of ourselves. To be sure, though, like in The Godfather, we are laughing at Fredo, this sad little drunken man, not with him as it was with Charlie Chaplin's Little Tramp. He is not in on the joke. But there is such vulnerability to him that we almost feel embarrassed by our laughter. Let's go back to Cazell's performance in Dog Day Afternoon. There isn't a sadder character than, than Sal in Dog Day Afternoon, and yet he's hilarious. Sal! Sal! What? Where are you? And it's not about funny lines at all. It's just, uh, I mean, from the haircut to the... Everything everything about it is comic. Now, you got to understand something. If we leave the country, there's no coming back here. One of the funniest moments in the movie was completely unexpected. It was an improvised moment. Is there any special country you want to go to? Wyoming. No, Wyoming. It's not a country. That's all right. I, I'm going to take care of it. Now, I don't know where that came from. I know that the take was almost ruined because I started to laugh, but I, thank God, didn't wreck the soundtrack. And Al almost broke up. You know, that's a laugh. If you want to get a laugh there, he would no more go for that, you know. And so because of that, it's just instead of, you know, he goes past the stage of, ha ha, Wyoming, that's not a country. He, he goes past that and you are forced into this sort of 
anxiety and sorrow for the guy. Even in the funniest characters that he played, there was always something tragic in it. And even in the most tragic characters, there was always something very funny. The character he's creating, I believe, is not some, is not necessarily something that, that, that the director or the writer envisioned. I think what he brought to it ultimately was something that surprised the hell out of everyone on the day happened. Yeah, you'd start a scene and then, you know, it would never start. That was the beauty of it. Then you realize, don't start. There's no such thing. It's just it's a continuum. You know, everything is a continuum. And so he would just say, what'd you do today, Al? After I just said a line to him, you know, he said, you seem like you, uh, you said you were going to go to so-and-so. And he would get you there. And you would just do this dance until you found your way. And then the improvisations would start, which was, and then the improvisations would go. And when they started to connect to what the reality of the scene was, he'd start to see, God, it was just, it was glorious. It was glorious. I've seen a ton of actors around John just give it a couple of minutes and you just see them go, what's that? What's he doing? How's he do that? What's the matter with you? Made me a promise, didn't you? Did you promise me something? Huh? Yeah. Did you say either we get away clean or we kill ourselves? Did you say but that? But I'm not talking. Did I'm, you? I'm not talking do you about not? that. I do believe. Do you believe in keeping your promises? Huh? Yeah, but I'm not. Then talk- does it still go? Yeah, it still no, goes. Well, what the f- are you talking about? Other actors either you know rose to the occasion and they didn't. Pacino definitely did. I think Al is one of the great actors of my generation, and uh, John gets a big assist. He just he constantly made him better and better. It was inspiring. I mean, you just got, you got, a, you got inspired by it. So you did it. You went and he made you better. After dog day afternoon, Gazelle, a heavy smoker, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. At the time, casting had begun for the 1978 epic Vietnam War drama The Deer Hunter, starring Robert De Niro and Christopher Walken. Gazelle was cast as Stanley, a Pennsylvania steelworker. All scenes involving Cazale were filmed first. Because of his illness, the studio initially wanted to fire him. But Meryl Streep, John's girlfriend, whom he was living with at the time, and director Michael Cimino both threatened to walk away if they fired him. He was also uninsurable at the time, and according to Streep, Robert De Niro paid for his insurance because he wanted John Cazale in the film. It was going to be all right, Nicky. Go ahead, shoot. Shoot, Nicky. I learned about when we were, Michael and I were meeting with actors, and I was reading with some actors. At one point, uh, he wanted to use John, and, and there was an issue about his being not well. John Cazale had already been diagnosed with cancer and was uninsurable. Obviously, if, if you die halfway through, um, giving your performance, it's going to cost a great deal of money to recast you. And Bob De Niro went to bat for John. He won't tell me because he's a very generous person, but I think he secured the bond on John's uh, participation. He was uh, sicker than we thought, but I wanted him to be in it. So Bob put his money down and got him in the film. And he was great in the movie. I mean, he was just beautiful in it. Hey, Stars! Hey! 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 Look at this! Hey! Hey! Mikey! Hey, man! How you doing? All right. 
was you? Where was you? Where, where was I? Where were you? Where was you? We had everything all set there. The beer, the right axle. Am I right? Huh? Got a mustache. Yeah. Hey, he looks pretty good. I think it's very clear that, that his talents were getting richer with every movie. I remember watching that movie, and I just felt like I was there in that town with these guys. I, I didn't feel like they were acting. Anybody see my boots? He's saying, uh, you know, let me, let me your boots. Let me your boots, and uh, De Niro's like, no, man. Hey, Mike, let me borrow your spares, huh? Your extra pair? No, Stan. What do you mean, no? Just what I said, no. No means no. You're some friend, you know that? You gotta learn, Stanley. Every time you come up here, you got your head up your ass. Maybe he likes the view from up there, huh? Nah! He says, uh, he says, Stan, you see this? This is this. This is this. This ain't something else. This is this. From now on, you're on your own. Hey, you know your trouble, Mike, huh? Nobody ever knows what the f you're talking about. This is this. What the hell is that supposed to mean? This is this. You can watch the movie and the scenes that, that he's in and, and just watch him and be thoroughly entertained or really moved. And that was Steve Buscemi. John Cazale died before the deer hunter was released. He was 42. No story about John Cazale is complete without mentioning his girlfriend and again, a young actress at the time named Meryl Streep. But the most amazing thing to see was Meryl during all of this and the way she was with him and by his side, right, right through the whole thing. Meryl, she was with him to the end, and she, at the hospital at the end, she was an angel. She was... I so admired how, how she behaved. It was, it was very beautiful. It was very, he was a very fortunate guy to have someone who loved him that much during his last days. When I saw that girl there with him like that, I thought, there's nothing like that. I mean, that's, that's it for me as great as she is in all her work that's what I think of when I think of her that moment that's what I think of here's Al Pacino sharing a story about his friend I was doing a play called The Basic Training of Pablo Hummel on Broadway and it was a really great role and I had done things with it, and I had gotten the Tony Award, and I was really, uh, you know, I remember John was coming to see it. And I don't like to know when anyone's in the house, but I knew John was in the house, right? And every single thing I did, every scene I did, I was trying to impress John. And I knew I'm doing this, I'm saying this, I'm not doing this, I'm trying to impress John. And uh, it was over, and I was really unhappy because I knew I hadn't done And John came back, <laughs> and he said, It's very impressive. <laughs> very impressive. I thought, Yes, John. I said, You know what? I said, He was so graceful, though. He was so gracious about it all. But I, I said, You know, I, I, I knew you were there, and I was trying to, I was doing everything twice as much as I had to do it, you know. He says, it was good, Al, it was good. It was good. He says, you don't know, you don't realize that, you know, you've been there. But I knew I had. So I was very, you know, he was like one of my idols, so that when he was coming to see me, it was, you give all out. And that's the worst thing you can do, is try to impress your, your friends who you love. Yeah, imagine how good John Cazell was, though. 
Al Pacino was nervous and wanted to impress him. Here's one final story about John from Steve Buscemi. I had a really weird experience, uh, surreal. I did uh, a voice on uh, The Simpsons where I played a bank robber. So I'm watching The Simpsons when it aired, and my partner, they, they did a likeness of uh, John Cassell. I was like humbled. I was like, oh my God, I'm acting with John. I don't know. I just, I like really felt proud. <laughs> I was like, hey, I really did, you know, I really did become an actor and this proves it. <laughs> Screenwriter and director Israel Horowitz, who knew and loved John well, who found the same astonishment in him that so many others had, may have discovered the ideal summation when he called his friend, quote, a small perfection. And so he was. And in his films, so he is. The life of John Cazale. This is Our American Stories. Great job on this script, Greg, as always. Great job, team. Let's go out with The Godfather. <laughs> 